welcome to the Junction Church Aberdeen podcast. We're so glad you chose to listen to this life-changing message. Uh, I want to, we're going to continue the Pressing In uh, series. Uh, I think Pastor Kevin started it uh, last week in the evening service, did like an introduction to it. And so this, if that was the introduction, then I guess this is chapter one. Uh, and I'm going to speak on uh, pressing in. But before I do that, I would love to play uh, a quick movie clip. Just the baddie. So he, you know, he says the bad thing. Uh, <laughs> that's okay then. That was, that's uh, a film I don't know if, you've, if, if you haven't seen that film. It came out 20 years ago. I've just ruined it for you. But uh, it came out 20 years ago, so <laughs> dry your eyes. Uh, <laughs> that's a pretty cool scene. And in the scene, the colonel, uh, or uh, Jack Nicholson... He sounds very eloquent. He sort of explains his position, and he's, uh, it's, it's a wonderful speech and full of passion and uh, full of uh, bravado, and it's really incredible. It's really, uh, uh, I don't know what you would say. It's not really inspirational, but, but, it, but it, uh, it sort of lights something inside you. But the truth is that he was trapped and pressed into saying something that he didn't really want to say. He was actually... He was, he was sort of pressed, he was needled, he was hounded, he was badgered into, into an untimely confession. It was, he was, uh, it was an emotional and, and, and mental collapse that sort of spelled his demise. And it's sort of exciting because when you see that, you think he's sort of, he's, he's right because of his own conviction, but in actual fact, his own vanity and conceitedness sort of overtakes and, 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 and he breaks sort of, the, the rule and the, and the code of what he's supposed to be hiding and supposed to be protecting and he caved in under the pressure he spoke he might have spoken with pomp and eloquence but but it was really just uh, vanity and 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 as a result he he gave in and he lost and i i think what i want to sort of show by in that in that clip was we're doing the pressed in series but the truth is that you press in or you get pressed in there's, there's, you, 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 either, you are either in the motion of pressing into something or something will be pressing into you. Something will be coming at you. Something will be badgering you and needling you and coming at you. And there's a choice. And it's not really, it's a choice that people don't often appreciate that they have. It's not often they appreciate that, that it's one that they have to make. But by default, you make a decision whether to press in or allow yourself to be pressed in. Pressing towards the goal implies that there's a destination implies there's something to be arrived at. Uh, pressing, uh, pressing relies upon following a conscious and deliberate route. You're trying to get somewhere. And if you're not, then you just sort of go with the flow. If you think about water, if you put water on a, on a mountainside, it will flow downwards. It will just go with the flow. It will always go with the path of least resistance. Without any purposeful intention, our lives can take a very similar trajectory. And it can go downwards as well without an appreciation that we have to be pressing in, pressing into God, pressing into that relationship with God. Then we can be like water on the side of a hill and just find ourselves trickling down until we realize that we're sitting in a valley as opposed to climbing the mountain. So that's me set out what I want to speak about this morning. I'm going to read. I've got a few different texts that I want to go through. But uh, the first one I want to 
uh, referred to. I think, is, I think this is sort of the, the governing text for this series, so I suspect it's something that's going to be repeated over the next few weeks. It's Philippians 3, verse 12 to 14, and it says, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God in Jesus Christ. I want to read that again from a slightly different version from the New Living Translation, just just a part of it, the part that I want to uh, focus on this morning, uh, because I I just, something in that translation of it, I was able to appreciate something of what uh, the Apostle Paul was saying. It's just in verse 12, it says, I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Jesus Christ first pos- uh, possessed me. So what do, we, what do we know? What can we tell from this passage? Well, the first thing is the Apostle Paul is, is saying, I'm not perfect. And it might seem sort of, an obvious thing to say, but he's saying, I'm not perfect. He's he's written a good portion of the New Testament, and he's saying, you know what? I'm not perfect. If I'm not perfect, and I I don't comprehend everything of God, I am not perfect. I am not this perfect. I have not reached perfection. I am not perfect, but I know someone who is. And and he sort of says that, that Jesus Christ has possessed and is the embodiment of perfection. That's who he is. That's, that's, that he knows that although he is not perfect, Christ Jesus is. Christ Jesus, who he has a relationship with. And as a result, he presses on to receive that imperfection or receive that gift from Christ Jesus. So I guess when reading that, there's, there's various things you can uh, try and take from that. And, and I think it's very easy to sort of fall into the idea that then, is this perfection or, or these, these gifts from God, are, they, are these something that, that I need to earn? Are these something that I need to work towards? Like, a, like anyone who went to scouts, you get those badges on the side of your... Like, are you trying to earn a badge? Are you trying to earn something? Are you trying to get something from God, earn something from God? And uh, my understanding is that's, that's not how the kingdom of God works. You don't earn stuff from God. You don't, you, don't, you don't work a certain amount where God is obliged to give you anything. That isn't the way our relationship with God works. When I, have, I always liken these things to, to my children. It's like, my, in order for my kids to receive something from me, it's the relationship with me that gets them it. It's not that they ever have to earn it. It's not that I... Uh, unless I'm trying to teach them something, of course. Uh, <laughs> but that's, I'm not a perfect father. Uh, but... <laughs> but yeah, they're, they, they, get, they receive from me. They receive the gifts and the overflow uh, and the abundance of my life because of their relationship to me, not because of anything else, not because they've earned it. I don't give them it begrudgingly because they've reached some sort of level or, or, or ticked some sort of box. I don't give begrudgingly because of that. I give because I have a relationship with them and I want to give them it. And not, uh, I'm not suggesting that we... we try and earn gifts or earn anything from God whatsoever. No, rather, we have to commit to build upon what we've already received. And I think about this, uh, I had this sort of vision when I was sort of thinking about this of, of a pyramid. 
And in order to have the pyramid complete, in order to put that very top brick on the pyramid, in order for that pyramid to be absolutely kind of in its completeness, in its fullness, it needs to have all those other layers of bricks beneath it. You know, you need to, in order to be living in the fullness of God, we need to build upon what God has built into our lives. We need to take what God has given us from the day that we put our hand up and say, yes, I receive you, Christ, and through every single... uh, Everything we go through, everything we receive from God, we build upon those things. We don't cast them aside. We don't think of them as not being worth anything. No, we, we build upon them. We take what God has built into our lives and we build upon and build upon and build upon. And as we do that, we build the fullness of God into our lives. Do you understand? It's, uh, it's the pursuit. The pursuit of the gifts of God rely on that sort of tenacious advancement. I, I heard, uh, I remember when I was growing up, there was a guy who came through the, the church that I was growing uh, I was going to at the time and he used a really funny turn of phrase one that I'd never really heard before and haven't really heard since but he, he was talking about the, the, the spiritual gifts the, the gifts that they talk about in the New Testament and he, he said he, there was a point in his life where he coveted these gifts he, he desired them so much he saw these gifts these gifts of wisdom these gifts of uh, understanding of, 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 of tongues and, and, and of healing and, and he just he wanted them so much he coveted them he was tenacious in his attainment of, 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 of receiving of, of building upon everything that God had put into his life and I always thought that was a it, it, I mean it must have been like 15, 20 years ago, I heard him say that, and it's, it's always been something that's stuck in my mind, because it's such an odd turn of phrase, to covet the, the gifts of God, and, and it, to me, that just speaks of that tenacious, that desire, that just hunger to sort of, I gotta have that, I, I gotta build upon it, I, I cannot allow this to be uh, something that's worthless. Uh, I remember um, hearing about Samuel, the, the prophet, and how what set him apart from all the other prophets was the fact that every single word from God that he received, he treated like it was a diamond from heaven. He wouldn't let it, like, like it was rain coming down, but it was so precious, and he wouldn't allow it to hit the ground. He wouldn't allow it to just sort of dissipate. And how many times do we hear something from God, and then someone asks us about it a week later, uh, and we don't really remember? Even like maybe praying on this prayer line, and someone says something and, and, and prophesies something into our life, and a week later, it's like, oh, I can't really remember what they said. And, and you know what? There's actually something totally precious about those things. They're like diamonds from heaven. And, and, and often they're there. They're given us uh, to, to build something really powerful and really strong into our lives. And yet we discard it like it's worthless, like it doesn't mean anything. But there's a tenacious sort of desire of like, I'm going to hold on to this stuff. This stuff, I want to build my life upon the diamonds from heaven rather than the dirt of the world. You know, it's pretty cool. <laughs> So, how do we, as Paul puts it, press on to possess that perfection from Christ? And I want to take us through a little bit of a journey this morning. Uh, I'm going to really take us through 1 Peter 5, verse uh, 1 to 10. And I'll probably stop here and there. So, it'll be a nightmare for the guys at the back who are doing it. But uh, they're professionals. So they'll do great. Uh, so, I'm gonna, I'll probably start and stop all over the place. So, I want to start. Off, this is a... The apostle, uh, the apostle disciple Peter, who is uh, writing a letter and uh, just expelling great wisdoms to the church. And he says, starts off, he says, The elders who are among you, I exhort. Exhort, I just wanted to give a quick 
thing, what exhort means, because it's not a word that's often used in modern language. And exhort means to strongly encourage or to urge someone to do something. It's like you come up behind. When we, when we pray, when we talk to each other, we're encouraged to exhort one another, to come up and say, you're doing great. You look awesome. What you're doing, what, what, what God is doing in your life is amazing. That's to encourage, just to sort of build up. And we're always encouraged. When, when, we, give, uh, when, we, when we pray over people, let's, let's exhort them. Let's encourage them. Let's talk about the greatness that God's doing in life. And then also, in the same way, you can, you can urge people, but in a great way. It can be like... Uh, that thing you're doing is amazing. Why don't we do this as well? Like you, you urge someone, you encourage someone, you bring an encouragement, and then you take that encouragement and launch it into something new. So that's what Peter is doing here today. And he's speaking to the elders of this, of this church, which, which basically means the church leaders, which would be like the pastors and uh, you know, core team, if they would have had something like that 2,000 years ago, but something of that nature. The leaders in the church. And it says... I, who am a fellow elder and witness of the suffering of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. I think it's important just to stop there. What's Peter saying by all that stuff? What Peter's doing is he's actually, he's giving, showing his credibility. He's speaking before leaders. He's speaking before people who have responsibility for other people's lives. And he's saying, you know what, I actually know what I'm talking about here. I'm not, I'm not just some sort of guy who flows into town and flows out of town. I am an elder as well. I carry the same responsibility. And I have walked with Christ. I've seen the suffering of Christ. And I've partaken in that. And I want you to know that I'm here to encourage you. I'm here to urge you to do something. And I know what I'm talking about. There's a credibility. He's, he's speaking to these leaders and he's, he's establishing that he is on the same level as these guys. He, he's not speaking about something far off and, and, and uh, unbeknown. It's, it's something that he knows about. It's something he's experienced. It's a wisdom he's received from Christ for this very task, for this very job. So it then goes on. It says, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crowns of glory that does not fade away. I want to just, at that very last bit there, talks about crowns of glory. It's also sort of referred to as, uh, uh, in other texts, as, as a conquering crown. And what it relates to is like an athletic achievement. It's, that's what it's supposed to be like. It's like somebody who receives a conquering crown for something they've done so, uh, after athletic pursuit, like a, like a gold medal in the, uh, the Olympics. And what I think it talks about there when it says that is, when you, when you achieve, when you think about those people who've won things, whether it be big football tournaments like the World Cup or things like that their names go down forever there's a legacy attached to that because they've achieved something and it's meant something and it actually becomes timeless it becomes something that, that, that exceeds just whatever it's not a momentary thing it's something people can go back to and it's created a legacy it's created something that is beyond time it's something that will go down in memory it's something that creates history and so when he says a, crown, uh, uh, a conqueror's crown he's saying that what I'm doing is I'm establishing by following this, you're establishing a legacy. You're establishing something that will go on and on and on and on. You're creating an inheritance for the next generation, which I thought was amazing. Uh, I want to just very quickly go through the, 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 what he's talking about here is the responsibilities for, for leaders. And I just think there's, there's, there's lots of leaders here. I'm just going to quickly go through it. I think there's some amazing principles here that, 
that we base our lives upon and, and actually as a church base our lives upon will, will, will bring great lasting and endurance to what we're doing here and what we're building as a church. The first thing it says is shepherd the flock. What does a shepherd do? A shepherd guides its flock. It is responsible for its flock. It protects its flock. It, is an, uh, it, it creates covering for its flock. It takes that field. It takes that allotted ground and that, those, those, those people that, uh, or those uh, in a shepherd's case, with sheep that are allotted to him or her and, and, and is responsible and cares for them, builds into their lives. And in the same way as leaders, we need to see that we are there to shepherd the flock. Whatever people, whether it's two or three people uh, that you're responsible for, it's five or six, where it's 10, where it's 20, where it's 100, those are the people there. That's your flock. They're the people you are responsible for. Whether you're uh, leading a pod and, and, and you're meeting up with two people in Starbucks, you know, you're responsible. You, you make sure that, that, that you're looking after them. That, that at the time that you're going to be there at, make sure they all know they're going to be there at. It's like, you know, there's a responsibility. It's actually empowering to know you have that responsibility. It's empowering to know that that responsibility builds. It, it creates something that endures. Yeah. The other thing it says is you're serving as an overseer. Serving as an overseer. It also says be willing and eager. Yeah. Which I think is one of those things you can kind of blast by. But willing and eager, you're not forced. As a leader, it is a, it is a great privilege but a great responsibility at the same time. And we, it's not something where we should be looking at as, a, as, a, as a, something we're forced to do, like our arms are twisted behind our back. It is, it, there's a willingness and an eagerness. And, that, and I, I say that as, a, as almost like you want to look at that as a, as, a, as a, I don't know, like a standard in whatever you're doing. If you're not doing it willingly and eagerly, you've got to look at why you're doing it then. Look at what's the problem? What's, what is it? Because God has said, when you are serving, when you are an overseer, there has to be a willingness and an eagerness to it. It needs to be something that you are driven and excited and enthusiastic about doing. And if it's not, there's something a little bit messed up. There's something a little bit wrong. He talks about uh, doing it for the wrong motives or, or dishonest gain and... I know in, uh, in leadership there's a sort of a, there's a little, I don't know if what you'd call it a, a term or a, a, I guess it's to some degree it's a, it's a poem, but uh, uh, the term is, uh, what is it again? It's uh, funny, honey, and money. And they're the three things that take out people in leadership. It's funny, funny doctrine. Just creating this weird stuff that just sort of goes around and, and, and it's not related to God. It's just, that's where kind of cults and stuff like that come from. It's just funny doctrine. People getting caught up in their own ideas and not being accountable, not being related to, to what the, the greater purpose of the church is doing. You know, seeing their own ministry and not seeing it within the context of what is being done as a unified body. And then there's honey, which is lust and uh, is, is the sort of something that catches men and women out uh, throughout ministry life. And the last one is money, which is sort of having a, being a responsible attitude to finances. You know, these are, these are three things that take out leaders, uh, or the three, three uh, of the main culprits for taking people out of leadership, those three things. People just sort of getting funny doctrines, which is more about really not being accountable, not being related to the context of the greater body and, uh, and, and just sort of being, having sort of a moral mindset and, and just being loose and uh, dishonest with finances. The other thing it says is be an example. Be an example. See, as a leader, you have 
you have uh, authority over people's lives and, and you stand upon a platform. I'm standing on a platform right now in a physical sense, but in often cases, leaders stand on a platform from a maybe in a, in a literal sense, in that other people are looking at them. As a leader, people are looking at your lives, and you need to be an example. You need to honor the platform. That responsibility, that thing that you've been given, that, that, that platform that you've been given is something that is, uh, is, is an important responsibility, and we have to honor that responsibility. It also says uh, that we aren't supposed to sort of be, uh, lord ourselves over anybody else. And, and I, it says... The idea is you need to have a just exercise of authority. Your authority needs to be just. It can't just be what for whatever your own goods are, whatever your own needs are, whatever your own side. It has to be just. It has to be. You are an example. When you stand forth as a leader, you are an example. And that's something I think we take in our lives. You know, you might not be a leader in the sense that someone has allotted people's lives to you, but in your workplace, in your home, you are a leader. You stand because you carry God. There's something of a higher purpose in every single one of us who've received Christ into our lives. And so we stand in the workplace. You are on a platform. People are looking at your lives. As soon as people know you're a Christian, they are waiting. I know I've been at work and I've been, uh, I've been frustrated by something and they're watching. They're watching just to see, is he going to swear? Is he going to just let go? Is he going to let loose? And you know what? You, you become aware of that and you just sort of pull yourself a little bit back in and understand that you are on a platform, you have a responsibility you cannot just treat people any way you want, you can't just sort of behave any way you feel like because there is a responsibility, there is an attention that is towards you and what happens from that? Well, leading based on these principles ensures a legacy why does it ensure a legacy? Because it actually creates an enduring and healthy culture those things, those very things just create a healthy culture because you're doing this stuff, you're leading this stuff and everyone who's seeing this stuff is, uh, is reflecting that. That's the point. You, uh, I, and you create a legacy, you create something that goes on, you create an inheritance for whoever's next, whoever's behind, whatever next generation. Or, you know, next generation isn't even just, a, it can even be just an age thing. It's just, it's whoever is coming next, whoever is going to come and take that responsibility on after you've moved on and you might move on to some other responsibility. I, I, I think about the church that I grew up in in Dundee and the, the pastor uh, who, or the pastors who planted it. I guess it would be, goodness. I remember them celebrating their 25th anniversary, but I think that could have been like 10 years ago. I mean, it's over 30 years. And, and the pastors who came up, uh, I believe they came up from London, and they planted this church, and I was in it all the way up in, in, and all the way through my childhood. And he died when I think I was about 21. He, uh, he sort of passed away. And, but he built this church, this vibrant church in Dundee that, that everyone in Dundee knew about. And, uh, and, and it, was, it was a really incredible church. But the thing is, even 10, 15 years later, it's still going. And it's going from strength to strength. And it's vibrant. And the people that he was able to pass it on to, he was able to pass it on to his daughter and his son-in-law and carry on that legacy. They carry on that inheritance. And to be, that's... That was him living out those principles right there. Uh, him and his wife, as they planted that church and they, and they brought that honor and they brought those principles, they built something that is still going and is going from strength to strength to strength and is bursting forth, has the same vision, has the same values and is looking to see at Dundee saved, which I think is, that's exactly what, what, what God is speaking about in this. The next part of the piece of, uh, passage of scripture I was speaking from is more, it speaks more towards the, the body, the followers uh, to those leaders. Uh, it actually refers to them as younger people, but it doesn't mean younger people in terms of age. It just means younger people in terms of like younger, uh, I guess, 
it, it actually refers to him as of, of lesser rank, but I feel that's quite sort of a hard term to, to, to throw out there. But it basically just means the followers, the body of the church. Uh, and it goes on to say, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. You've got to respect their wisdom. You've got to respect their, and be accountable and, and respect that calling upon their lives. There is a calling upon leaders. Our pastors, Kevin and Shell, they have a calling upon their life. They came up here f- over 15 years ago to plant a church, having never been to Aberdeen. God put a calling upon their lives. We're building something that is going to move and shake Aberdeen and see lives change, see lives just saved like a, like a, like a lifeboat out in a, in, in, in crazy seas just just being like a place of life a place where people can be brought in from from darkness brought in from brokenness i'll get back to what i was saying (laughs) yes all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility for god resists the proud but gives grace to the humble therefore humble yourself under the mighty hand of god that he may exalt which means raise to a higher position or rank, exalt you in due time, casting all your cares, sorry, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, which is clear-headed and restrained. Be vigilant, which is keeping watch for possible dangers. Because your adversary, doesn't say God's adversary, it says our adversary, The devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. I want to take us on that journey, the journey I mentioned a while ago. I want to take us on that journey. What is the journey that, that has followed us as people who have sort of brought ourselves into that relationship with God, into just walking with God? What's, what is it that we are looking to do? What are the things that we need to set as values within our life? The first one it says is submit. Followers are not mindless drones. Sometimes people think, oh, it's the following, it's mindless drone. No, no, no. Followers follow the guidance of their leaders and diligently see their vision sort of complete. They're looking, they are, they are, they are followers, they are believers, they are disciples, they are the people who stand and, 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 and set forth and whatever vision is cast out, grab hold of it and walk forth in it. And, there's, and it also talks about humble, be humble. It's a freedom from, from arrogance and, and pride. Just a freedom from it. Can you imagine that? To walk around without any sort of agenda of your own. Just to have that freedom, that humility. To know that I'm not trying to build something that glorifies me. But something that, and, uh, that glorifies God. Glorifies God above all else. We can, take, we can find pride in all sorts of things. Oh, we want to build our church better than everybody else's. That's a pride. That's an arrogance. We're not trying to do that. We're trying to build the body of Christ. We're, trying to, we're being responsible for what we have right here. But we're not trying to batter anybody else. We're all together. We stand together as one. We stand together. So all the churches in Aberdeen, we're all looking to do the same thing. We want to see God glorified in this city. And it says, submissive to one another. Not only the elders, but I also think it means you'll be submissive when no one else is watching. When you're at home and it's just you and the missus, you and the husband, you and the kids, 
you know, that's not the time when you just start lording it. You, when you start throw out everything that you heard throughout the week and everything that you demonstrated on a Sunday. It's no, 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 no. It's you've got to walk in it every day. Be submissive every day of your life. Walk in it. Believe in it. Let it be something that is a standard in your life. The next one it says is be sober and vigilant. Uh, there was a really sad story this week. Uh, I think it was almost exactly a week ago. There was a, a pretty famous actor called uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman who uh, I think he'd won an Oscar a few years ago and had been nominated a bunch of times. And he'd had, uh, over 10 years ago particularly, he'd struggled a lot with alcohol addiction and, and, and drug addiction. And apparently he'd been like, really sort of sober for 10 years and, and uh, it had given him a real humility. And it seemed like all the people he worked with loved him and just thought he was this, this wonderful, loving man and seemed to not really carry around any ego, which was very sort of, it, it was noted that that was very uh, odd for an actor to not have that vanity and not have that sort of... Uh, you know, just he didn't seem to be without an ego. And, but in the last sort of year or so, he, just those, those demons came back and he sort of gave in. And, and, and about a week ago, he, he, he overdosed on heroin. And he died, I think he was about 46 or something. And I've heard quite a lot about it. Uh, and they were saying he was like really in the prime of his career. And it was very, very sad. And one of the things I read about it was uh, these psychologists and people from... Uh, I think it was one of the London universities, and they were talking about the nature of addiction and how come after 10 years sober, 10 years sort of keeping it away, did he reuse? What, what, what was, how would that happen? And how is it that that's such a common thing? Uh, and they said that, it re, uh, and it was, they kind of interviewed ex-addicts and, and, and people who had similar uh, troubles themselves. They'd said that it was actually, a, it was that relapse is almost down to a conscious decision. And Giving, giving in to temptation is, is down to complacency and almost like a choice not to care about it anymore, a choice to think I'm over it, a choice to sort of... And he, they, they actually said that the likelihood is he probably would have known he was going to do it months before he actually did do it because he started to entertain it. He started to be slightly complacent, which is really sad. Um, how do these things get broken in the first place? Well, it's, it's down to exercising self-control, but there's two kinds of self-control. There's, there's, a, there's a natural and a supernatural. There's a natural which is kind of like carnal repression. Like you're just trying to repress that beast inside of you. And you're just, it's everything you can do. And I, but that's, that's something that, that wears people out. Something that comes upon every single day. But then self-control is actually also one of the fruits of, fruits of a spirit. And it's something, a gift from God. In one, carnal repression relies on, on, on us sort of uh, the strength that we sort of pull from ourselves whereas that supernatural self-control comes from God it relies on his strength it comes to him in a place of need and, and, and we, can, we can resort to that and I speak about this because there is an opportunistic enemy out there it says that he's like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour not that he can devour anybody at all but who he may devour I sort of thought, when I, when I saw that, I, I saw like a picture of people sort of standing out in like the plains of Africa going and sort of uh, on a safari. And you have people who stand in the vehicle, in the, in the big truck, sort of with their binoculars looking around. And they're in a safe place because they're high up, they're in a vehicle, and they're diligent, and they're able to see whatever is coming. They're vigilant, and they're clear-minded, and they're restrained that they're not going to go out. And then there's other people who just say, oh, look at those flowers just going to go and pick up some flowers over here I'll just turn my back down and I'll just make myself a sitting target that's who the lion devours people who are not restrained people who do not set those boundaries up in their lives it sounds really sort of like ah oh, what you have to set boundaries up in your life look 
You have to put boundaries in your life. Don't live this crazy life where you become saved and then you can just do whatever you feel like and it's not going to have a response. We're talking about building the gifts of God, the fullness of God into your life. In order to do that, we need to be grabbing hold of these principles. And the last one it says is, is resist. Resist. There's there is suffering. It talks about how uh, we will suffer a while. And that's, that's a part of, part of life. People, people get ailments. People get sick. People are tempted. People find, find their emotions in tatters. And, but the thing is, is, everything in what the enemy does, everything in what that lion does is trying to intimidate and trying to make you turn away from God. Everything is about turning away from God. The devil doesn't make you sick but he'll make you think that God doesn't care that you are. He doesn't attack your emotional state, but he'll make you turn and blame God. He'll isolate you in a wasteland of fear and make you feel like you're totally deserted. He'll strangle you with temptation so that hope is eroded. And he'll coax the morally corrupt to destroy the innocents around them. And he will plant insecurities so deep down in your life that you will not even be able to separate them from the truth and from the reality and he will make you think that you would wish you'd never been born and that God had never built you in the first place. The enemy just, every single one of these lies, every single one of these deceits is for one purpose only, that you would turn away from God, that you would turn away and you would shun him, you'd shun his love, you'd shun everything that he wants. He would take every single one of those lies, every single opportunity that he have. He'd yell and he'd roar and he'd shout at you to intimidate you to make you think that God doesn't love you with all of his heart, with all of his mind, with every breath of his being, that he loves you and he has complete love over everything that you have in your life. He just wants to love you. The enemy has one trick and one trick only and that is just that, that, that lie, that deceit to just make you turn away just enough, just enough that you miss the fullness of what God wants to do in your life. And we are encouraged to resist even as the darkness presses in around us to resist. There's a story in the Bible of, uh, of David, how he protected him and one of his uh, uh, men protected a lentil patch. A lentil patch. And they would not let the enemies have it. They stood there and they resisted him. And that's sometimes how we have to see our lives. That we're going to stand on that lentil patch. We're going to stand on our life. And we're going to resist the enemy. But we have Jesus standing next to us. That's who our company is in that moment. We have Jesus right next to us. Because it says, cast all your cares upon him. For he cares for you. That's the truth. The lie is he doesn't care. The lie is he can't hear you. The lie is any of those things. The truth is he cares for you. Cast your cares upon you. And finally, know that that the same sufferings are experienced by other Christians in the world. This is, this is the truth. The enemy will make you believe that your sufferings make you unique in some way. You look at the sufferings of your life, the, the sicknesses of your life, the losses of your life, and they somehow define you. They somehow make you special, different. But the truth is, they're the same sufferings that are being experienced by everyone else in the world. Don't let the sufferings of your life be the thing that defines you. Don't let them be what you put out front. 
God has the uniqueness and the creativity. He's placed, as Pastor Kevin has coined many times, a genius nature in every single one of us. Let that be the thing that stands front and center of your life. Not the thing that, that, that the enemy says is, is the weakness or the, or the failings of this world, the tainted nature of this world. Don't let that be the thing that holds you down and defines your life. Let the greatness of God shone upon your life be the thing that defines it. I'm going to have to skip to the end. Unfortunately, <laughs> I've taken far too long. I want to go back to that bit of 1 Peter 5, verse 10. It says, But may the God of all grace remember humility. See, here's the thing. Remember, humility begets grace. But may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. He wants to perfect your character. How does that work? That it would reflect his nature. We carry the embodiment of him is, is, is to, to show the characteristics of his life, of who he is. That's to have the nature of God. That's how God perfects us, is that we start to take on his nature. We start to take on the characteristics of who he is. He wants to establish our firm and permanent acceptance. That's what he wants to establish, that you are permanently accepted, not conditionally accepted, permanently accepted. He strengthens our resolve, our capacity to carry, and our endurance. And he settles He settles our debts because he is the Redeemer. If I could have the the band on stage. See, the path to perfection seems like the constant and incessant challenge of good deed after good deed after good deed, which would make it seem as if it was something that that you have to earn. It's like slogging up a, a steep hill, something that just gets steeper and steeper and steeper until you just can't hold on anymore and just fall to the bottom. That's how we think of God's perfection. Something that we have to attain. Something that we're trying to build towards. But that would be the case if it wasn't that Christ has already been at the top. Christ has already been to the top of that mountain. We are already perfect. We are already perfect because... When our lives and our hearts are aligned with God's. When they're aligned with God's, we receive him into our lives. We find ourselves in the perfect, the perfect will of God. The submission, the vigilance, the resistance, these don't make you perfect. They just help maintain that relationship with God. They just keep us right with God. They maintain that, that relationship, that intimacy with him. They are what keeps us close. They are what keeps us engaged. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.thejunctionchurch.com or come along and see for yourself in one of our services.